Good morning. How's it going? I'm super happy to be here with you today. Today we are beginning a new teaching series uh, that we will be in throughout the fall. Typically we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible because we want to give you a snapshot of what the Word of God says. Uh, we just did that for about 20 months through the Gospel of Matthew and some of you are like, I'm glad we're doing something different right now. And so, but occasionally, we, we take some time to stop and, and to ask the question, what are some of the prevailing topics or questions that are being asked in our cultural moment? And so the teaching series we're starting today is called Confronting Christianity. And the basic framework for this series is based off an excellent book that was released earlier this year by the same title. It's called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. McLaughlin holds a PhD in Renaissance literature from Cambridge, a theology degree from Oak Hill College, and she's the former VP of content for the Veritas Forum, where she would train Christians in the academy how to speak about their faith with agnostics and atheists and people of other religions. The subtitle of her book is 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to relate to and interact with some of these questions. We're going to take a look at what, what God's Word has to say about some of them. Let me give you just a few of them so, to give you a sense and a feel of where we're going with this series. And so how can you take the Bible literally? Lots of people are asking this question. Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Because uh, Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours of the week, right? How, how can you say there's only one true faith? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? We'll use these questions and others as a launching point for our sermons throughout the fall. Uh, we won't necessarily be teaching the content of the book word for word, but it's kind of giving us the framework to look at God's word and examine what he has to say. Now, now let, me, let me say this. The, the heart behind this isn't to say, let's do a series on hot topics. That'll be really fun. People will be really excited about that. Um, we're, 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 there's enough controversy in the world without poking the bear too much and trying to be controversial for the sake of controversy. Rather, our desire is spiritual formation. We recognize that there are a lot of mediums and messages that are trying to form our opinions and beliefs around these kinds of questions. And so as a church, we want to think through both the theological and the pastoral implications of some of these questions. What does it mean for us to relate to God's Word and answer these questions? What does it mean for us to relate to people who might believe or think differently than me in light of some of these questions? And so we really want to dive in and wrestle through some of this stuff, and we want to help you develop confidence in your faith, knowing that there are some good answers to some of these things. And so now, let me give you a little caveat out of the beginning. I, I am not under the assumption that you're going to agree with everything that I say. Um, you, you may sit out there during the course of this fall, and you may disagree with something that I teach. You may disagree with the teaching position of our church. And if that happens, what I want to encourage you to do is engage. Like, let's, let's not be like everybody else. Who, who, who we, we start forming polls and we argue at each other from behind digital faces. Let's, like, let's talk to each other. Let's ask each other questions. Let's dialogue. And if you're really mad, email jhayward at newheightsbentonville.com. Okay? 
And so uh, that is the teaching series that we're in. Uh, just before we get into our topic for today, I do want to remind you of this theological formula that we use in our discovery that I think will be a helpful grid as we think through some of these things. In discovery, we say, in essential beliefs, we seek what? Unity. In the die fours of the faith, who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, the authority of God's word, we want to have unity in those aspects of our faith. We want to be together. One of the last things Jesus prayed before he was arrested in John 17 was that his people would be unified, that they would be one like he is one with the Father. Jesus wants Trinitarian unity among his church. Amen? It's exciting. Like we, I, I want that. We need that. And so in the essential beliefs, we seek unity. In non-essential beliefs, we allow liberty. Now, if, if you're out there thinking, well, what's a non-essential belief? We can talk about that later. Uh, there are different categories of beliefs, things that fall into tier two, tier three. But th the point here being is we want to extend kindness and charity and grace towards others who may disagree with us about second-tier or third-tier theological issues. And it really it is important to maybe delineate what, what are those issues, and we'll do that through the course of this series. But we want to have liberty in non-essential beliefs. We want to, to love each other and extend kindness towards one another. And that's why the last thing is, in all things, love. John 13, 35, remember what Jesus said? They will know you are my disciples by how you argue about things on social media. They'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Otherwise, we're just clanging cymbals or noisy gongs. And so that's the series that we're doing here. We're kicking it off today. We'll be in this throughout the fall. We'll do a couple different things. But the question we're asking this morning is this one. How can you take the Bible literally? And you almost have to say that sarcastically when you say it. How can you possibly think that this book is something that you should take literally in your life? And the assumption behind this question is that the Bible is something that we should never take literally, that this is an antiquated, outdated, culturally offensive book. It's full of contradictions. Why would you believe this stuff? And maybe you've experienced this personally in your life. Have you ever, ever done the Bible roulette thing where you're like, okay, I'm going to do a quiet time today. I don't know what I'm going to read, but you open it up and you, and, and you, you point down and you look at God's going to speak to me today. This is going to be really powerful. And then it's Exodus 23, 19, do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, oh, I won't do that, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word. It's really powerful. I love it. So what do we do with this book? What do we do with this book that can't, it can be confusing, it can be frustrating if we don't understand it, it can be offenses to our moder offensive to our modern cultural sensibilities. How, what do we do with this book? How do we interact with God's Word? And so this morning what I want to do is give you a short theology of the Word of God, and I want to do it by asking two questions. Number one, what is the nature of the Word of God? What's the nature of the Bible? And number two, what is its purpose? What is the nature of the Bible and what is its purpose? What is the core essence of Scripture? Why, what is this thing and why did God give it to us? That's the talk. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to come here this morning. We uh, cherish your presence in our midst here today, Lord. We pray that you would move and woo us and speak to us and challenge us by your word. We're starting with this one because this is the thing that pricks people's hearts, Lord. This is the thing that divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow, Lord. This is the authority that, that we place in our lives. This is how we know who you are and who Jesus is. And so would you teach us a little bit about your word here this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage that. Open them up to John chapter 1. Looking at John 1, you can keep a finger there. We're also going to look at John 20 as we begin here this morning. And and that's where we'll start, but we're going to kind of be all over the place today. And so here's what it says. Uh, Most of you know this passage if you've been in the faith for a while. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the what? Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skipping down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in close relationship, the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. God has been made known through this Son, this Word who became flesh. At the end of John's Gospel, uh, towards the very end of the book, John kind of sums up why he wrote the book, and he says this, Jesus performed a lot of other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these things are written down that you may believe in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Word became flesh. He has made God known. Things are recorded about his life so that we may know and believe in who he is. That's where we're starting here this morning. And so let's look at this first question. What is the nature of the Bible? What's the core essence of this thing? And the first thing that I want to point out here is the Bible is literature. It's, did you guys know this? The Bible's a book. It's a book. In fact, it's 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. The Bible is a literary work. It's the first book that was ever printed by Gutenberg on his printing press in the 1400s. The Christians have always been on the cutting edge of communication technology. The, the Pax Romana, the Romans Road, the Gutenberg printing press, the video. Christians have always used these things to continue to spread the good news, the message of Jesus. And this is by far the most famous and widely distributed book of all time. And because the Bible is a book, because it's a book, it's important for us to understand uh, the, the, the literary quality or the literary nature of this book. If we, will, if we are to rightly interpret what the Bible is saying, we have to understand what it's saying in its context. And its context is, this is a book of books. And there are really two things that we need to recognize in light of this. The Bible is literature, and because the Bible is literature, it contains a variety of literary genres. You didn't know you were getting an English lesson here this morning, did you? Any English teachers in the room? Everybody loves you. Woo, thank you, English teachers. All the, I know there's some English teachers in the room like, I will not raise my hand for you. <laughs> 
As with any work of literature, if you want to really comprehend it, it's important that you know what type of book you're reading, right? We don't open a cookbook and read a cookbook so that we can get a thorough historical accounting of the pioneer woman's family history. We open a cookbook for the recipes, right? We read poetry differently than we read history. We read letters differently than we read laws. And the Bible contains several different types of genres. You need to know this. If you're going to properly understand and interpret the word of truth, rightly dividing it, we need to know that the Bible has different genres of literature. And so it's full of histories like Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Joshua and the book of Acts. It's it's full of narratives like the Gospels or Ruth or Jonah. It's full of poetry like the Psalms or Song of Songs, wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It has law in it, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's prophecy, and there are these things called epistles, which is a fancy word for letter, letters that Paul wrote or letters that James or Peter or John wrote. There are different genres in the Bible. Why is this important? Let me give you an example. Um, if, if you were to read a narrative genre as if it was a law, what misconceptions might you come up with? Like if you were to read the book of Genesis and you read about Abraham's life and you read about Isaac's life and you read about uh, Jacob's life and you're like, man, what law is God trying to communicate to me through the lives of these guys? You might walk away and think, God wants me to be a polygamist (laughs) because these guys all had multiple wives. They made lots of bad decisions. They go to Egypt. They're like, take my wife. And it's like, what in the world's going on here? And so so if you read narrative, the point of a narrative account is to tell a story with a plot about a character, kind of leading you in a particular direction. The point of law is to communicate God's sovereign will uh, to governments and to religious institutions, etc. And so narrative is descriptive of things that are going on. Law is prescriptive. Like he says, do this. And so if you read a narrative as if it's law, then you might read the Old Testament and think, wow, God wants me to do a lot of horrible things. <laughs> it's just not true. And so you have to understand the genre that you're reading. We did some child dedications this morning, so here's another example. Proverbs 22.6, this is wisdom literature. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. What happens if you read wisdom literature as if this is a promise or guarantee from God? Because wisdom literature is, is fundamentally principles, general principles for life that are most of the time true, but maybe not all of the time true. What happens if you go to this and you think, God is making me a promise with this? And so what you do is you train up your child, and you teach them about God, and you take them to church, and you're like, I I am guaranteed to have a godly adult child. This is amazing. God stamped the passport. We got it. This will be great. I'm just going to coast into retirement. You can't read wisdom literature as if it's this promise where God owes you something. And so you have to understand that there are a variety of of genres in the Bible. Wisdom literature is more about principles than promises. So genre matters. Second thing, the Bible uses a variety of literary devices, irony, foreshadowing, imagery, personification, simile, um, metaphor. 
And this is important because the Bible uses these devices to communicate truth or to tell a story in a more compelling way. And the books that we love to read, the literature that we love to read, it's full of these literary devices, these creative devices that speak to the human heart. We love metaphor. Like, like metaphor speaks to the soul of people. We love these pictures. It paints this picture for us of something that, that words alone can't, cannot do. And so let me give you an example. James chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. What literary device is this, by the way? I'm not very confident. I don't know. <laughs> this is a metaphor. The similes are like or as. Metaphor is the tongue is this. It is a fire, right? Now, um, is the tongue literally a fire? Yes or no? It depends on who you are. If your tongue's on fire, please leave. Something's wrong with you, Okay. The tongue is not literally a fire. However, the, the, the metaphor that James is using here is communicating some truth. In fact, this is one of the first verses I ever read in the Bible as a 17-year-old right after I became a Christian, and the Holy Spirit illuminated this passage, and I was like, oh, man, I, I, my words matter. What I say, ma- blessing and curses coming out of this same mouth, our words can be devastating like a spark that sets an entire forest on fire. And that word picture communicates something that just the idea alone can't communicate. Does that make sense? So the Bible uses a a variety of literary devices. And so let me go back to our original question. Can you take the Bible literally? Yes or no? (laughs) Yes and no right? Uh, When the Bible uses figurative language, we must understand the language figuratively. Uh, However, the truth that that figurative language is trying to communicate to us, we have to receive as true, okay? And so the Psalms say that you are the apple of God's eye. Are you literally an apple? No. But are you precious in the sight of God as his child, as his image bearer? Yes. Uh, the, the scriptures say that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Is Jesus literally a lamb? No. But is he our sacrificial substitute to atone for the sins of the world? Yes. And so, can you take the Bible literally? Yes, sometimes. Uh, Can you take figurative language used in the Bible literally? No, you need to read it like normal people read normal books, okay? This is a book. In fact, one of the first books that I was given in seminary uh, as we were were examining how to study the Bible was this book from the 1930s or 40s. Willie, maybe you remember. It's called How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. And so if you want to know how to read and interpret the Bible, learn how to read books, Don't just read tweets, okay? Read books, and you'll learn about the Bible. Okay, the Bible is literature. The next point I want to make here this morning is it's not just literature, but it's it's divine literature. The Bible, like, this this is God's Word. This is not just a book. This is this is the book. This is the Word of God written by the Creator of the universe given to his people so that we might know him. It's divine 
literature. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In, in, in this passage, that word scripture here is this word graphe, and, and, and it means, it, this, this is the word that's used all throughout the New Testament to, to describe the Old Testament writings, the scriptures that Jesus read, the scriptures that Peter and Paul read. All scripture is breathed out by God. This is a word that Paul made up. It's this word, theopneustos. I, can't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Willie, you help me later. But, but it, it literally means expelled from the mouth or the lungs of God. Every word of the scriptures has come from God's mouth. It's not just the writings of human beings. Like if you have a copy of a Bible in your lap right now, you are holding the words of a being who created everything in existence. All scripture is breathed by God. God is the author of Scripture. In the same way that God spoke, what happened when God spoke in Genesis? The heavens and the earth spun out of his mouth. He created the universe. In the same way that God created the universe, God spoke, and out of his mouth came these words that create life in us as we read them and interact with them. There's this Latin phrase that I love, sacra scriptura est verbum dei, Scripture is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. This is God's Word. How does this work? Because God didn't sit down and, and literally write this himself, did he? He used human agents to communicate his truth to people. And so Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 kind of gives us a sense of how this ends up working out practically. Peter says this, Above all, you need to understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. It's not about what the prophet was thinking to himself. When a prophet sat down to write words, this is not about what the prophet was wanting to say. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the people who wrote Scripture were, that word carried, it, 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 it literally means carried. They were propelled along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote down the words of this book. And, and so it, it seems also, as we think about this, that they had some understanding or recognition of this. I don't know about you, but when I write in my journal now, I don't have the same sense that I think it's talking about, that, that, that God is sovereignly and divinely propelling me along to write his words that will be transcendent truth for all mankind. But these guys had some sense that, man, their, their words carried weight. Um, and so uh, Peter refers to the writings of Paul, if you flip over to the next chapter. Peter calls Paul's letters Scripture. Do you know that? A contemporary of Peter, someone actually who rebuked him for sitting at tables with Jews in the book of Acts. Peter says this, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with his wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. 
which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other what? Scriptures. It's graphe, same word. So Peter is acknowledging that Paul's letters are Scripture. There's some acknowledgement here. And two things to point out. One, if you have trouble understanding what Paul writes sometimes, welcome to the club. Peter's like, no, it's hard to understand this guy. He's a little crazy. And the second thing is, man, this is God's word. This human being is writing the word of God. Now, how far down does this inspiration go? I mean, the the creative devices that we talked about earlier, um, is that Paul or is that Peter? Is God using the personality? Is God dictating his words to them? What does this look like? And so I don't think that God was dictating word for word what these guys were writing. I I think that God was inspiring them through their own personality, and he was kind of superintending this process, compelling them along to write these words down to us. But the words matter. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's another another phrase that kind of gives you the whole counsel of Scripture up to that point. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear until everything is accomplished. And some other translations here say, say, not an iota or a dot, or the King James says, not a jot or a tittle, uh, something that would look like an apostrophe to, to your eye right now, like the smallest little part of the words that were written down to human beings from God ain't disappearing. It's not going away. And so God is speaking to us through his word. Um, Heaven and earth will pass away before the words of Scripture will pass away. It is inspired down to the smallest level. Uh, just a little aside here. I had an entire point. I read, I read a couple books this week on the veracity and the historical reliability of the New Testament and how the manuscript evidence shows that we have really great documents and some things about contradictions in the Bible if you struggle with some of the contradictions and things. And I just decided... I'm not going to tell you anything that I read. (laughs) Uh, But if you want to do some study, here's what I would encourage you to do. There are a couple of books that uh, that I think are really good. One is written by Norman Geisler. It's called When Critics Ask. He literally goes through every trouble passage in the entire scripture, and he gives you some, some cogent answers to maybe some of the seeming contradictions that we read. The other one is called Are the New Testament Documents Reliable by F.F. F. Bruce, and, and what that book demonstrates for me is that we have this unbelievable, historically verifiable, really close evidence that the book that you are holding in your hand is the Word of God, Jesus's words. It's amazing. If you want to do a little study, I would encourage you to study there. Third point, the Bible is revelation. So it's not just literature, and it's not just divine. It is divine literature that's intended to reveal something to us. What is it intended to reveal? Revelation is, is exposing or disclosing information. It's like, it's like 
this act of drawing the curtain back and revealing the thing that was behind the stage. And in theology, revelation primarily refers to God's self-disclosure through, uh, through a variety of things, uh, through uh, his power, his presence, his creation, uh, his words to his people so that they might know him. So God reveals himself. And, and the question we have to ask is, why does God reveal himself? Because it is impossible to have a relationship with someone who doesn't reveal themselves to you. It's impossible. When Katie and I first started dating early on, um, we would have those long conversations. You guys remember those long conversations, those of you who who've been there where we'd talk on the phone for hours or we would spend hours together and I would interrogate her about her life and her dreams and, and it was kind of the ooey-gooey phase where I, I was trying to get to know Katie. Who is Katie? And it started at this factual level. Katie has brown eyes. Katie has a brother. Katie's mom was a math teacher. And then it, it kind of graduated into the, this other level of knowing that's like Katie is this person who is, uh, who has this kind of character. Katie's a hard worker. Katie's a truth speaker. Katie has incredible integrity. And it was through Katie's willingness to disclose herself in that relationship that I got to know her. And God does that too. God reveals himself to us. Two primary ways that he does that in scripture. The first way is called general revelation. This is where God generally reveals himself to all people in all places at all times so that people might have a relationship with him. It opens the door for people to understand, to see, and to seek God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Have you ever sat in front of like a, an ocean or a mountain and you've had this sense of wonder or awe, like maybe, maybe there's something bigger out there. Maybe my life is not just, a, maybe I'm not the center of the universe. Maybe everything doesn't revolve around me. Maybe it revolves around someone or something bigger than I am. That's creation, I think, speaking to, it's kind of leaking into us, that's saying God exists, God exists. Philosopher Charles Taylor calls this leaks in the imminent. What he's saying is that there are these soft spots in our world where the transcendence of God leaks into our world. And so this happens when you're out in nature, and this happens when you read poetry. This happens when you go to Crystal Bridges and you, you see art. Or have you ever listened to a song? Uh, I had a friend who listened to a song once, and it led to his salvation. Uh, he was driving in his car, and he heard the, the lyrics to this music, and the Holy Spirit just kind of penetrated his life in a new way. And so God reveals himself to people. He's saying, I'm here, I'm here, seek me. Uh, this also happens through the human conscience. Paul writes in uh, Romans chapter 2 that, that indeed when Gentiles who do not have the law do by things, uh, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, and their consciences also bear witness. It's kind of this, 
this interesting argument that Paul ends up making. Another, another way that uh, people often call this the moral argument for the existence of God. That, that, that if you have an impulse towards something that's right, that this is the good thing to do. Or if you have an impulse saying that this is wrong over there, where do you get that? Like, what is the stick that you're measuring those things against? Um, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says it like this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but, but, but he started thinking and he said, how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust in the first place? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what a straight line is. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? And this, again, is God generally revealing himself to human beings so that we might see and know him. He is revealing himself to all people. And this general revelation, Romans 1 tells us, that it is insufficient to save you, but it is enough to hold you accountable or to condemn you. That people are left without an excuse because God has made himself plainly known to all people at all places. And so what do we do? God's revealed himself, but it's not enough to save, and so God has to kind of double click and go in a little bit deeper and he has to do the second kind of revelation which is called special revelation and special revelation is god specifically and specially revealing himself to specific people i think many people throughout the ages not all people because uh, not all will come so that people might have a relationship with him special Revelation, there, And there's a variety of, of, of ways that God specially reveals himself as you read the scriptures. He sends angels to visit people. People have dreams and people have visions and there are these miracles that are happening. And those things are really great. But the typical theme of all of those things is, is that the word of God is accompanied with the works of God so that people might know God. And so what's happening when we were in Morocco back in the spring, and we visited with some, some Muslims who had just become Christians, were, they had a dream of Jesus, and he said, hey, come and follow me. And that led them to study the Bible, and they ended up becoming Christians on the other side of having this dream, this amazing uh, revel special revelation that led to uh, the Word of God kind of penetrating their hearts and their lives. And so the word of God and the works of God, and we know from the passage we read at the beginning that the ultimate combination of the word of God and the works of God being fulfilled came in a person. He was the word from the beginning, and he was with God from the beginning, and he became flesh so that he could make God known. And then John 20 says that he did lots of things, and the purpose of the writing down of the words of Scripture would be to tell us all of the things that this Word of God did so that we might believe in him. And so the Spirit of God breathes life into these words so that we might know a person, and that leads us kind of to this last point. What is the purpose of the Bible? Is it for you to, to study uh, literary devices 
and to understand English or whatever language uh, you happen to be reading your scriptures in. What's the purpose of the Bible? It's to point us to a person. And there are really only two ways that we can read the scriptures. We can read the Bible as if it's all about me and what I need to do and, and how I need to live, or we can read the scriptures as if it's all about him and what he did and what he is doing in the world. And when we read the scriptures as if it's about me, it becomes this crippling weight that we bear, and we, it becomes these lists that we have to follow when we start to should and ought ourselves to death thinking that, man, I'm not good enough, I don't live up to it. And that's actually the purpose of the law. It's to point us to our insufficiency. You can't be saved by yourself. And so instead, we need someone to save us. And the point of all the scriptures is not to tell us all the ways in which you're messed up. We, we kind of already know that we're messed up. The point of the scriptures is to point us to the person who is going to fix it, to save us. And that is Jesus uh, in John 5, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me for life. Kind of a scary thought. You can know the Word of God without knowing the God of the Word. You can know the Word of God without knowing the God of the Word. And so we study the Word of God, so we can know the God of the Word, Jesus Christ, the Word of God who became flesh, who paid the penalty for us, who lived the life that we could not live. The Bible's not about me. It's about Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller has this really great um, uh, document. You should Google it. It's called Truer and Better. Uh, and, and I'm just going to read a couple of things from that to give you a picture of of what the Bible is actually teaching uh, from Genesis to Revelation. He says, Jesus is the truer and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the truer and better Abel who, was, though innocently slain, has uh, blood that now cries for our acquittal and not our condemnation. Jesus is the truer and better Joseph who, at the right hand of God, right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the truer and better Jonah who was cast into the storm so that we could be brought in. The Bible is not about you or me. It's about Jesus. We read the word of God to know the God of the word. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, I think we're, uh, it, this, this will be a good application of this. We believe God's Word is powerful, and so we want to practice the power of the Word. Uh, and so here's what we're going to do. Uh, in, in just a second, our, our band's going to come up front. They're going to start playing. Uh, but we have a microphone right here. Do you see this microphone? It's, 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 it's right up front. And what I want to encourage you to do is consider coming up front and bringing your Bible, you can, it can be on your phone or uh, it can be in your lap, but come up front and read God's Word in front of the church. And maybe there's a, a scripture that's been really special to you in your life that you feel prompted to read in front of the body, or maybe God is kind of stirring you right now to, to do something like this 
uh, in our service, but, but what, what I want to do is create some space for us to, to do what Paul says, to, to have the public reading of Scripture, because we believe God's Word is powerful. It, it, it's useful. It changes us. It points us to Jesus. Now, a couple of, of caveats here. Number one, let God's Word stand alone. Uh, don't come up here and preach or pray or prophesy or, or, or go on a tear about something. Uh, just read a scripture and then go sit down. And then the other thing would be concise. Don't, don't if, if you're like, I just feel compelled to read Psalm 119 in front of the church here this morning, uh, someone will tackle you. And so, um, but, but if you are wanting to come up front, then you can come up to the microphone. If someone's already up here, that's okay. Kind of form a line around this side. If someone reads a passage that you were intending to read, read it again. Let's saturate the room in the Word of God. Let's do this for the next several minutes, and let, let's, uh, let's read Scripture together. And so let me pray, and then when you're ready, come up to the microphone. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you that it's about Jesus. This is not about us. It is so hilariously not about us, it's not even funny. And so, Lord, may we point one another to Jesus as we read and relate and interact to your word. Help us to encourage one another through this. Holy Spirit, take some of the scriptures that are about to be read, and would you just, would that be one of those leaks into the imminent? Would the transcendence of God penetrate hearts and change lives in this room? through the reading of your word, in Jesus' name, amen.